Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Is the mind just a part of the world or is the world all in the mind? On this week's episode, we're exploring the relationship between personal experience and the wider universe. And to help us make sense of our experience, we're joined by leading physician, philosopher and poet, Raymond Tallis. I want to talk a little bit about the long and winding path that leads from sense experience to theories of almost everything. If you enjoy today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iai.tv. Back now to Raymond Tallis. Einstein, he said at the height of his euphoria, when in late 1915 he developed uh, the um, general theory of relativity, he felt he'd fulfilled the Pythagorean mission to see, as it were, the mathematical skeleton of the universe. And he said, the eternal mystery of the world is its comprehensibility. It's the fact that we make some sense of it. And it is mysterious. Think about who is it, what is it that's making sense of the world? These little pinprick bonces, otherwise known as our head, appear to have true things to say about universe. Now let's look, it's a rather unequal contest. Our heads have a volume of about four liters. Ish. The universe is four times 10 to the power 23 cubic light years. So it seems a fairly unequal contest when one is trying to understand the other. And what's more, our heads have the cheek to utter the word universe. And damn, we put the universe in inverted commas. I mean, what cheek is that? So there you go. So this is the great mystery that Einstein was aware of. Here's a philosopher with whom I disagree absolutely profoundly, but occasionally you agree with people uh, with whom you generally disagree. And he says the mystery of our capacity to understand the world is as follows. How we, physical natives or denizens of the physical world, can have developed a scientific theory of that whole world from our meagre contacts with it, from the mere impacts of rays and particles on our surfaces, and a few odds and ends, such as the strain of walking uphill, which, as it were, makes us acquainted with gravity. So I want to talk a little bit about the long and winding path that leads from what Quine has just talked about, from sense experience to theories of almost everything. To try and see the sense-making animal. And the challenge is large. We have to look at the path from sense experience to the intuition of objects existing independently of experience. When I see a chair, I not only see what I see of the chair, but I already know or sense that it is much more than what I see or experience. And then we have to collect objects, whether they're trees or whatever, under general categories, stone, tree, lion, and rain. And then, very mysteriously, we separate those general categories from their instances. So we have a concept of rain distinct from experiences of getting wet. And then we observe general patterns. Also, very curiously, we ascribe intrinsic patterns to what is out there. That is to say, we think there's, in what is out there, there are things that we don't experience immediately, we don't know of, but we know that it must have properties in itself. We arrive at general laws, connecting those intrinsic properties of objects or events. And then go further than that, we identify hidden forces, such as forces of gravity, such as causation. And it is very clear from the best kind of primatology 
that those, all of those things are not, as it were, available to the other chimps in the primate family. We are utterly distinct from other primates for these reasons. There's also the discipline of explanation. We don't, we learn slowly but surely not to jump to conclusions. But we have a capacity to learn from surprise. We're not merely surprised, but we learn from it. We infer general principles. What's more, we cultivate surprise. We cultivate puzzlement. Quine again said, man is the creature who invented doubt. This cultivation of uncertainty, of course, has as its best and most wonderful flower, uh, science. But it's there throughout our humanity. We deliberately cultivate uncertainty. We actually exercise the sense that we don't know. We do have an, uh, that's because we have an ache for a more general sense. It's not sufficient to us to explain this and that and the other. We want to know what is common to this and that and the other, and why this, that and the other is connected with other things. Behind that, in turn, is the faith that the world will make overall sense. We believe there's some kind of inherent sense of the world, even if it isn't immediately accessible to us. There's this kind of thing that everything happens for reason, the principle of sufficient reason, which is particularly associated with the philosopher Leibniz. But we, don't, we are willing to wait for understanding. And this is a religious, originally a, a religious faith, the idea of the hidden God. We don't know what the world is really made of, but we know somebody or know of somebody who does. That's God. That has been translated into a willingness to wait for understanding in experimental science. And there are some spectacular examples of such weights, which I'll talk about in a second. But let's look at the uh, notion, the religious notion of the world making sense, the hidden God. There's a notion that God's perfect intellect ensures that his creation will make sense, even to us, even to these small bonces uh, that are part of a gigantic universe, because we were rather special. There's an intrinsic intelligibility of the world, which God has made in part available to us, the favorites of his creation. The logos of the world is reflected in the logos of humanity. But if we move from religion to science, is this, uh, to reiterate this willingness to wait, a lot of theories we have carry with them a clear statement of their incompleteness. Science is willing to be incomplete en route to any imagined theory of everything. Of course, there's been lots of talks of theory of everything recently, and I think that's rather a corruption of science, because it is really uh, against the very principle of science, which is to recognize the multiplicity, the variability, the dishomogeneity of things, which shouldn't allow us to have a single theory of everything. But one of the most important aspects of science is a willingness to separate the pursuit of understanding from practical use. When you're in a hurry, when you're an animal in a hurry, you want, if you, want to, if you want your understanding now and immediately. In science, there's a willing, willingness to wait. This is expressed, of course, in pure, pure or even idle curiosity. Most explicitly, of course, in blue skies thinking. One spectacular example that I referred to earlier was the 600-year journey from Copernican astronomy, <laughs> the astronomy that basically led to us to, re to understand quite differently the movement of heavenly bodies that via uh, Kepler and others led to mechanics and Newtonian theory and ultimately to general theory of relativity 
and to the to uh, general positioning systems. So we waited a long time for Copernican astronomy to actually give us devices that would enable us to find our way through the wilderness. No animal would put up with that, uh, that weight to find their way through the wilderness. We have, you're probably familiar with the phrase deferred gratification, which is supposed to be a marker of middle-class people, like you know, this audience. Well, we have deferred cognitive gratification as well. We're willing to wait for an immediate answer. That would not be acceptable uh, in um, pre-scientific uh, society. So how is this possible? Well, there have been lots of ideas as how it is that we can make sense of the world. The first people to think about the intelligibility of the world in a general sense were the pre-Socratic philosophers, most famously Heraclitus. And he felt that um, for, uh, we could understand the world because a bit of the logos or intelligibility uh, that was in God was implanted in human beings. Indeed, it was implanted in particular human beings, namely philosophers, and indeed in a particular philosopher, namely Heraclitus himself. <laughs> the rest of the people were junk. And, and extraordinarily, that notion of Logos, it's a very interesting story, that through Philo of Alexander, who was a Jew Jewish philosopher, but also deeply familiar uh, with um, Greek thought, combined these two in the notion of the sense of Logos as potentially a god that was the bearer of understanding. And Christianity is the religion of the Logos. Jesus Christ is the Word made flesh. I speak that as a non-believer, but it's an absolutely stunning idea, and it's rather extraordinary. So in the Old Testament, we have God basically shouting to the void, telling it to shape up and get on with it. He uttered stuff and sense into being. Of course, on the final day of creation, after, you know, he didn't have a day off, he uh, handmade God to make sense of stuff. One of the problems was that the is that was created uh, with the act of creation had ought baked into it. So there was a merging of uh, is and ought, which made um, religion possibly at odds uh, with science. So that was one version, that basically we had a God, we were handmade by God, we could understand the universe uh, because we were the favorites of creation and God had put a little bit of that intelligibility of the universe into our little bald bonces, bald and bearded in my case. What about secular attempts to make sense of the fact that the world makes sense to us? Well, you can classify those two attempts by looking at uh, this philosopher. This is Plotinus. If the eye were not sun-like, how could we see the sun? And if, if there wasn't this some kind of relationship, a special relationship between ourselves and what we are aware of, the universe we're aware of, uh, then we could not even be aware of it. So if the eye were not sun-like, how could it see the sun? Well, one way of putting it is, if the world were not mind-like, how could we comprehend the, comprehend the world? So perhaps we make sense of the world because the world is mind-like or even internal to our minds. But if the mind, perhaps the, the, we can make sense of the world because the mind itself is world-like. So, how can we look at those, approach those two uh, notions? Well, the most famous attempt to explain our capacity to understand the world comes from Kant's, Immanuel Kant's critique of pure reason. The opposite view is that biology shaped the mind to make sense of the world, naturalism. Well, let me say a little bit about Kant. Kant was the Bach of philosophy. If you think about Bach, he summarized 
all the musical achievements before him, and he influenced all the musical achievements that followed him. And Kant, in many ways, is that. He summarized all that had come before him, and he's influenced everything that follows. The experienced world, he said, is understandable by the mind because it's shaped by the mind. Well, the Critique of Pure Reason is one of the most profound, difficult, and influential, and discussed works of Western philosophy. So what is his argument? His argument is the mind imposes the spatio-temporal structure of the experienced world. The world is like it is because it has the categories of, uh, or the, the forms of sensible intuition, as he called it, imposed on the world. So it is the mind that brings the chaos of experience to order by imposing the categories of understanding, such as things like causation and so on. So you might say, well, if we impose these things on the world, what about the world in itself? He says, the reality of the world beyond experience is unknown to us. So the world makes sense to us because in some fundamental sense, we impose sense on the world. Mind imposes order on nature. And very boldly, he claimed that it was the synthetic activity of the mind, the mind getting things together, that was created the laws of nature, is the lawgiver of nature. Unfortunately, it doesn't work. It doesn't explain why, for example, we have different viewpoints. Viewpoints that have seen to be determined by our bodies. Our bodies which are located in space and time and subject to the laws of nature. In other words, we cannot be the source of space and time if we are located in space and time. And we cannot be subject to the laws of nature. Uh, we, we cannot be, as it were, the originators of the laws of nature if, as we know to our cost, we're subject to them. In short, Kant doesn't account for the limitations of our individual experience and the gradual progress of understanding the universe, the fact that uh, scientists now understand more than scientists did 500 years ago. So that idea bites the dust. Mind requires bodies for them to have a viewpoint on the world to be a viewpoint of somewhere. Bodies are located in time and space, and time and space appears to be there before bodies and hence mind. And a lot of people have said of Kant, well, hang on a moment. If you think the world has a structure which is imposed upon it by the mind, uh, what about the world before there were minds? You know, we seem to have a good story of the world before minds. Basically, the Big Bang happened uh, before the Earth came into being, and the Earth came into being before there was life, and life came to being, into being before there was conscious life. You're not telling me that story is imposed on the world by the mind. So, Kant bites the dust. Now, the alternative is that um, the mind conforms to nature because it better bloody had to. That is to say, we have to get things right, otherwise um, we would not have survived. The very fact that we are, I'm up here talking to you indicates that I'm a survivor who somehow must have got the world right, because if I didn't get the world right, I um, wouldn't be around. We wouldn't survive. The mind, is the, so the argument goes, is really the brain, and the brain is an evolved organ that's necessary for the kind of evolutionary success that's produced its finest product, like me. So, biology shaped the mind to make sense of the world. That's the naturalistic viewpoint. However, that doesn't work either, because the vast majority of organisms, from bacteria to mammals, do very nicely, thank you, without making any sense of the world. You know, bacteria are the most successful organisms, and to be honest, they don't, as it were, rack their non-existent brains to understand the universe. 
And in fact, if you were really serious about making an organism that was going to replicate endlessly, you wouldn't rely on stupid things like consciousness, which is full of hesitations and mistakes and so on and so forth. You would actually just rely on the laws of nature. The laws of nature are absolutely reliable because they're by definition unbreakable. So it really, those who have a naturalistic account of why we're so clever uh, really don't explain why we need to be clever at all. They seem to think they have an uh, explanation, but clearly they don't. The knowledge and theories that are the great glory of human cognition began with blue sky thinking that has no place in the urgent, ruthless world of the survival of the fittest. Imagine waiting 600 years to get any benefit from Copernican theory. You know, in the long run, we're all dead, and that's certainly true of any organism. So uh, that fails completely. So if we go back to Protinus's two ideas, or idea, that if the mind, if, if the eye, sorry, if the eye sees the sun, it must in some sense be sun-like, is it because the mind is like the sun or because the sun is like the mind? Neither of those things work. At this stage, you'll probably want to ask for your money back because I don't have an answer to the question <laughs> that I posed. But I wanted to make it sort of, I hope it, you feel it sort of cognitively tasty and you'll go away brooding over it. So the mystery is intact and there you go. That's the result. So let's have a, look, a quick look at the mystery. One of the extraordinary things about our capacity to understand the world is that we escape our subjectivity. The ultimate aim of science is the so-called view from nowhere. And the, close to the view from nowhere is something like E equals MC squared. And E equals MC squared, as, as it were, has escaped from subjective perspective. It's escaped from my viewpoint, your viewpoint. It's escaped uh, from frames of reference etc etc it is an eternal truth it is not uh, it is one of those truths that is not in any sense uh, person dependent and that brings us to the mystery of the nature of objective knowledge how is it that we arrive at objective knowledge knowledge that doesn't belong to you or to me unlike our perceptions unlike our sensations my pain is my pain but the theory of pain belongs to any of us the trouble with that is that it leaves a kind of senselessness at the heart of sense, and I'll mention that in due course. And finally, the question we want to ask is, supposing we wanted to think about understanding the world, how do we have any sense of progress? Is the world such that we could have a complete understanding of it? Well, what would a under complete understanding be? Well, let's think about vision. Supposing I could see all of the world, in order to see all of the world, I'd have to see through everything to see everything else. So a totally comprehended world would actually have no content. It would just be invisible, just like a totally visible world would be invisible. Knowledge, of course, is ultimately based on experience. If I know that London is 200 miles from Stockport, that knowledge ultimately can be tested against experience. But knowledge transcends experience. Again, it's not something like a pain or whatever that, I, um, that belongs to me. Knowing that something is the case is quite different from experiencing something. And this brings us to a mystery. And you may think there's facts about the, boring, the most boring things there are. There's nothing matter-of-fact about facts. The fact that we know that something is the case, you know it, I know it, we can share it between us, is one of those things that is absolutely unique to humanity. Facts aren't located in space or time. The Battle of Hastings took place in Hastings in 1066. 
But the fact that the Battle of Hastings took place in 1066 isn't confined to 1066 or Hastings. That's why I can refer to it now. And facts liberate us from the causal net. The fact that I interact with the world through knowledge means it's quite unlike experience, where you interact with the world causally. So facts, as it were, unwire us from the material world. Let me tell you a little bit about the senselessness of the heart of sense. I mentioned E equals MC squared. This is, as it were, knowledge at its highest level. This is the world reduced through science to a system of magnitudes, a pure abstract uh, relationship between general quantities. And this is why the theory of everything doesn't deliver what people would hope. It becomes a theory of everything by becoming a theory of absolutely nothing at all. That's the only way it can, as it were, rise above actual contingencies. Its, its contents are opaque substances like energy and mass and charge. And of course, at the heart of a lot of science are constants, which are uh, totally unexplained. Also, when you get E equals mc squared, if you look at it a bit critically, you think, God, that's a bit contingent, isn't it? It's a bit accidental. And by the way, E equals mc squared is absolutely bonkers. What have you done? You take light and you extract from it its velocity, and then you multiply that velocity by itself. That's no way to treat light. So there's a kind of senselessness at the heart of sense. But of course, um, it is extremely useful, as we know. In fact, we can use it to blow up the universe and so on and so forth. So let me talk finally about the notion of a complete comprehension of the world. Can we have an idea of absolute progress when we don't know what the end point would be? What would constitute a complete understanding of the world? Well, we couldn't have a complete understanding because ultimately whoever, whatever is understood has to be understood by someone. So we need a human bearer, something behind the lens. So E equals MC squared has to find its place in the chaos of my mind, your mind, everybody else's mind. I've already mentioned, too, the question of if, if we had a complete understanding of the world, would that understanding actually have no substance? Because making the world transparent would effectively be the same as making it invisible. And finally, there is a dynamism understanding. So you've arrived at the understanding that E equals mc squared, but already you're moving on to other things. The whole process of trying to grasp some fundamental theory is something that's embedded in a life that's busy doing other things. Um, the comprehensibility of the world has been an extraordinary journey that's no, not over yet, and it has no clear endpoint. I don't think I'd be interested to know what people feel what an endpoint would be for understanding the world. But it is itself impossible to comprehend. We are utterly exceptional entities in the universe. As I say, we're the only entities that have the cheek to put the universe in inverted commas. Thank you. I'll pause there. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe and review wherever you listen. Tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers.